Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. All right, if you will please look at verse 11. We're going to read verses 11 to 21 here in Galatians 2, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. Verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Fathers, we come and ask your blessing on our time together in your word. I pray specifically for us this morning that you will help us to understand just how undeserving we are of your great grace and love, to help us understand our true condition, to understand it not just from our perspective as individuals, as sinners, but from our perspective as a people, as a part of humanity, to understand how we as a whole have rejected you and then to see in that the great grace that we have in Christ. We ask your blessing on our time. Spirit, help us to understand and apply your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So does the name Robert Rakes mean anything to anyone in this room? I'm going to guess it's probably a no, maybe outside of one person who was here in the first service. Thank you, Matt. Uh, you may not know the name, but you do know what he is known for. I will give you three hints to help you guess what he uh, did. The first one is flannel graphs. The second one is gold stars. And the third one is macaroni crosses. No, it is not Jordan's idea of a fun Friday night date night with Sue. Well, actually it is, but that's not because of Robert Rakes in any way. That's just because Jordan's weird. But I digress. It was your other guess that was the correct one. Robert Rakes is known as the father of Sunday school. Now, when it comes to those three things I just mentioned, flannel graphs, gold stars, and macaroni crosses, the reason we associate those things with Sunday school is that's because for many of us in this room, that's probably how we grew up. 
in the American church in the late 20th century, it seems to me that Sunday school was, for a lot of people, nothing more than a glorified Christian-esque daycare. The normal program included taking attendance, which is where you got your gold star, and the more gold stars you got, the better off you were, I guess, everywhere in life. Uh, followed by prayer, then singing, normally action-filled classics, right? Like Father Abraham and, uh, I can't think of any, the wise man built his house upon the rock. Uh, you then go into story time, which is filled with all these bright cartoon uh, illustrations of normally Old Testament Bible stories. And then came the creme de la creme of Sunday school, and that's craft time. Uh, since I was a child of the 80s, I am pretty sure that the hit show MacGyver had a huge impact on American churches because I think in Sunday school they were trying to teach us that you could build anything in life out of just five materials. That was Elmer's glue, popsicle sticks, macaroni, glitter, and crayons, correct? Oh, oh the works of art we would create in those humble cinder block wall rooms. It was magnificent. Well, for many of us, this was our Sunday school experience. But it is important to note that that was never, ever, ever, ever in the mind of Robert Rakes when he started the first Sunday schools there in the late 1700s in England. To understand the origin of Sunday school properly, you really need to understand what education was like in late 18th century England. At the time, there was no public education available to the masses. Formal education was something that would have been reserved for the very, very wealthy. If you were a very, very wealthy family, you would hire a governess or a tutor to come either live in your home or at least uh, come to your home, normally to train your sons. It's not unheard of to have daughters given formal education at that time, but it also was not as common as it would have been for boys. So at least the sons would have been trained, maybe the daughters. If you weren't quite as wealthy as that, then uh, there were boarding schools where you could send your boys to be educated with with children from other wealthy families. Girls in these families, as I said, would sometimes be educated, but it wasn't the rule, but at least they had access to formal education. They could listen in on what was going on with the boys and or read some of the books that were available, etc. But if you were not born to an upper-class family, there was little, if any, chance that you would ever receive any kind of formal education in your life. For poorer families, in general, both parents would work, whether that was in the home or out of the home. And again, in general, children would be expected from a very young age to work alongside their parents. We're talking about stories and accounts from that time where children who are six and seven years old are working in factories alongside their mother or father for 13, 14 hours a day, six days a week. Now you can imagine in that kind of life, there is very little opportunity for education. And so not only were many of these families in poverty, but the lack of education for their children pretty much ensured that their children, when they grew up, would also have families who would live in poverty. Enter Robert Rakes and Company. In the late 1770s, Rakes and some others are working with and ministering to a group of boys who are in jail, most of them for stealing, okay? These are boys, not men, boys who are in prison or in jail at the time. And as they are doing this, they begin to think about the situation. For many of these boys, the reason that they are in jail is directly tied to their poverty. Now, I'm not excusing their crime, stealing is stealing, but let's face it, if you're starving and your family is starving and stealing is an only, one of the only options you see to you, you can kind of understand why they ended up there. And so 
they were thinking about how to address this. How could we prevent the boys from, from getting into trouble before, you know, then? Is there anything we can do? And as they thought through this and wrestled with this, the idea they came up with was these boys need a basic education. We're talking reading, writing, and very, very basic arithmetic. If they could do that, if they could have that opportunity, then they would be able to get better jobs, because reading and writing was a big skill at this moment, right? So to be able to get a better job and lift themselves and their families out of poverty. And since the only day that the, of the week that the boys were free from work was Sunday, they started a Sunday school. Now, Sunday school this time was not the 45-minute uh, Christian-esque daycare that I described earlier with the crafts and songs and flannel graphs and those kinds of things. It was a multi-hour academic event where you would come in and you would sit in a classroom and someone would teach you to read and write, normally using the Bible as a textbook, but using others as well, other books as textbooks as well, and you would be taught basic math. And even though its beginning was focused on preventing boys from getting into trouble, almost from the very beginning, if not from the very beginning, it was open to boys and girls uh, alike, which was unusual at the time, and it wasn't even relegated to just children, it was also open to adults, and a lot of adults came to Sunday school because they needed the same skills that the kids needed. They learned, needed to learn how to read and write and do basic math. And the benefits of this idea were, as you can probably imagine, huge, huge for the communities where these things popped up, and they very quickly spread from England into America. Now, here's your Jeopardy fact of the day. I give these to you every so often if you ever win Jeopardy because you know this answer. I get a cut. That's the deal that we have running here at Cornerstone. Did you realize that public education today in both America and in England can be directly tied back to Robert Rakes and the Sunday School Movement? If your kids go to a public school, if you went to a public school, the reason that happened is because of him. There was no public education before him. He started all of this. Now, as public education moved from the realm of the church to the realm of the state in the 1800s, the need for Sunday schools to function as actual schools diminished, and in time, my personal opinion, the Sunday school movement kind of lost its way and morphed into the thing that many of us grew up with in our own past. Now, why did I tell you all of this? Three reasons. One, because I like church history, and church history is helpful and gives you an understanding of what you've experienced in your own past and has its benefit just for that and that alone. Secondly, because unrelated to anything else we'll look at today, Sunday school serves as both a great example and a great warning to us as a church. On the one hand, it is a great example. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed really to find a better example in church history of the church looking around at the context in which it lived and operated and finding a way to be a blessing to the world around it. I mean, they looked around and the world is filled with poverty and children are, are spending all these hours working and not getting anywhere in life and, and stealing and all kinds of trouble and heartaches. And, and they're like, what can we do? And they're like, we can, we can teach these kids. And they did. And it literally changed the world, our world. It changed everything that we know about society. It had a huge spiritual impact as well as all of that was happening. So it's a great uh, blessing. But on the other hand, it's a warning to us about mission drift and traditionalism. I mean, try to think of another ministry, whether it's past, present, whatever the case may be, um, where whatever that ministry set out to do, that was accomplished 
100%. Can you think of many other ministries that churches have started where the, their original goal is actually accomplished 100%? The original goal of Sunday school was to provide a basic education for all children. And the moment that public education became the law of the land in England and America and these countries, that was the day that Sunday school finally reached its goal. And then, if you follow the logic here, that should have been the day Sunday school ended. It accomplished the purpose. It set out to do it. It did what it, it came to do, and that was done. But, of course, this is the point that traditionalism kicks in, and people are like, well, we've always had Sunday school, right? We've had Sunday school in this church for 50 years or 70 years. I think Jesus went there, and, you know, we've got to keep this thing. If we end it, you know, everything's going to fall apart. And, and so, got to keep it going. The purpose has changed. The, the goal's been accomplished. So what happens? Mission drift. What started as the mission is now done, and so it shifts to something else. And so it's a great example of, and a great warning to us all at the same time as we think about the things we participate in as a church. But then finally, I tell you this story because it strikes me that we are in the exact opposite situation that Robert Rakes was in there in the late 1700s. In the late 1700s, I would say that a generally biblical worldview would have been commonly held by most people in his day. Now, what do, you, what do I mean by a generally biblical worldview? I'm referring to a general understanding that not only is there a God, but that that God is the God of the Old and New Testaments, that Jesus claimed to be his son, the Savior, that the Bible was his divine revelation to mankind. And I also think there was at least a pretty large amount of knowledge regarding the stories and the characters of the Old Testament, probably, or not just the Old Testament, of the scriptures, probably more so than you would find even in churches today. I think this would have been the, the general understanding that most people would have shared. They would have had a generally biblical worldview. This does not mean that most people in the late 1700s were believers. I can't speak to that one way or the other, but at least that was the world they were coming, uh, the view they were coming to the world with. What wasn't common at the time was basic education. Now you fast forward to our day. What is common in our day? basic education. You'd be hard-pressed nowadays to find someone who can't read and write and do basic arithmetic. But what is not common in our day is a general biblical worldview. You know, in Rakes's day, illiteracy was the problem. In our day, I would say that biblical illiteracy is the problem. And I'd give you just two quick examples of that. I remember in college, I was in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I had struck up this conversation with a stranger. And as we're talking, I'm trying to share the gospel with him. And I don't remember exactly how this came about or how he, why he even said this to me, but his comment was, I've never even seen a Bible, much less read one. Now, this was a guy in his 20s. This was like 1999, 2000, somewhere right around there, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, USA. I've never even seen a Bible, much less read one. Um, Second example, this was just from a few years ago. I was talking to a guy, and in the process of the conversation, I don't know what we were talking about, I mentioned David, you know, King David, Old Testament David, David and Goliath, David, that guy. I mentioned David just in passing, and he stops me and goes, uh, who's David? And I was like, uh, <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you just quickly explain who David is? Like, oh, David, you know. <laughs> like it, there's a lot of story that goes with that, that that's kind of important to help him understand. And, 
And it just struck me, you know, in both of these cases, and I don't think either of them were lying to me or trying to be silly, neither of them had grown up in any kind of a Christian background at all. Nothing. Which is hard for some of us who maybe have never been in anything but a Christian home or background to even imagine there are people in in America, in our neighborhoods, that have no, I mean, none, no concept of biblical truth. But folks, this is... This is certainly the case, and yet I would even say that even for those who do have a background in Christianity, who did grow up in churches to one extent or another, there is still a large amount of biblical illiteracy in that group as well. They may know who David is, but they may not really know who David is. They may not get how David fits into the larger story of Scripture and why he's so important and and understand any of the things about him and how he fits into the plan of God. And it makes me kind of wonder if, you know, I don't think there's a need for a Sunday school today at all. Maybe there is a need for a Bible school to teach biblical literacy to whoever would want to come and hear it. I think it would be helpful because as we look at this section of Galatians that I read to us just a moment ago, and as we begin to look at everything else that's coming up here in the months ahead here in Paul's letter, there is a vast, vast amount of of biblical and theological foundation that you have to understand in order to really appreciate what Paul is saying. Here in our text this morning, we see a specific scenario where Paul is publicly and sharply rebuking Peter. As you will recall from last Sunday, I hope, at some point Peter makes a visit to Antioch, and while he is there, for at least the time that he's there, he becomes accustomed to eating dinner with Gentiles, probably Gentile believers. And while that doesn't seem so amazing or significant to us, in Paul's day, for a Jew to eat with a Gentile... Uh, would have been unheard of. But something's changed, and of course, that's the gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that has come, and that has changed everything. And so those old requirements, those old restrictions, those old separations that existed with the Old Testament law, they have all been done away with now. Thus, Peter can now eat with his Gentile brothers in Christ. And everything is going perfectly fine until one day a group from James, here in Jerusalem, there in Jerusalem, uh, whether it's James the Apostle or James the brother of Jesus, we don't know, a group from James shows up. And there's something about their visit, we have no idea what it is, but something about their visit causes Peter to now become afraid of the unbelieving Jews there in Antioch, what Paul calls the circumcision party. And out of fear of these unbelieving Jews, he pulls back and he separates himself from his Gentile brothers, not because eating with them is wrong, not because there's anything inappropriate or sinful going on whatsoever. He pulls back and stops eating with them simply because they are Gentiles, which of course is how he lived before Christ. And unfortunately, as we saw, he's not alone in this. Paul tells us in verse 13 that the rest of the believing Jews there in the church, they follow suit. Even Barnabas, a leader, is carried along with them in this hypocrisy. And I explained how it was hypocritical. It was hypocritical because the gospel that both Peter and Paul preached made it clear that salvation did not come through keeping the Old Testament law. 
It didn't come through that at all. It came through faith in Christ alone. That's the how. And it also made it clear that the grace of God was now available to all mankind, not just Jews, but Gentiles too. That's the who. And so for Peter to ignore the how by acting as if those Old Testament commands are somehow still in effect and to deny the who by treating the Gentile believers as if they're somehow secondary citizens or something to be avoided is not just a bad decision on his part, remember. It is an unintentional attack on the truth of the gospel itself. And we now need to understand why that's the case. If we start back here in verse 14, we'll remember how Paul begins this confrontation with Peter. He begins by asking Peter a very pointed question that is designed to draw attention to his hypocrisy. He says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to now live like Jews? Now, let's start by just ensuring that everyone is on the same page with the two groups being referenced here. You probably know this, but I don't want to assume it. A Jew is someone who is a descendant of Abraham, specifically through his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. Abraham had other children outside of Isaac. In fact, the song we learned in Sunday school taught us that, right? He had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and he had many other grandchildren besides Jacob. None of these other people are included in what it means to be a Jew. In order to be a Jew, you have to be a descendant of Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob. That specific line. People who descended through that line are called Israelites. They are part of the nation, the children, the people of Israel. So this is what a Jew is. Got it? A Gentile is literally everyone else. Anyone who is not through that specific line is a Gentile. They are not a part of the nation, the children, the people of Israel. This is how Jews divided up the world biologically. As you can see here in the text, Peter is a Jew. And yet, while in Antioch at least, he's been living like a Gentile. In other words, he has not been living like someone who is beholden to the Torah, the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. He has not been living like a normal Jew was expected to live. And the reason he hasn't been living that way is because of Christ, because of the gospel. But now, all of a sudden, his actions are indicating that all of these Gentiles who have put their faith in Christ need to also start living like Jews. In other words, they need to begin living as if they themselves are beholden to the Old Testament law, to the Torah. Or, if I can use a technical term, he is indicating that they need to become proselytes. Proselytes. Now, I gave you your Jeopardy fact of the day. Here's your vocabulary word of the day. A proselyte is a person who is converted from one opinion, religion, or party to another, especially recently. Most commonly, it refers to a Gentile who has converted to Judaism. Peter's act of separating himself from the Gentile believers simply because they're Gentiles is sending the message that uh, in order to be a part of the people of God, not only do you have to put your faith in Christ, but you also now have to become a proselyte. You have to become a Jew, and for a Gentile, that would mean being circumcised and now keeping the Old Testament law, etc., etc., the rest of his life. This is what Paul is publicly confronting Peter about. Now, beginning here in verse 15 and all the way down to verse 21, 
Paul begins to expand on this idea in order to help us understand why this is so wrong. And in order for us to follow his uh, argument and expound on his explanation here, I have made a decision uh, to not assume that all of us in this room are on the same page, biblically speaking, that there are people across the board in terms of their understanding of the biblical story, of theological things, like etc. I don't want to assume that we all have the same level of biblical literacy. And so as Paul lays this foundation here, we are going to stop and examine every single foundation stone that he's laying in order to make sure we understand what is going on, because what we do here is going to be critical to us correctly understanding the rest of his letter. In verse 15, Paul begins, and I need you to listen very carefully to this sentence. Paul begins making a correct biblical historical distinction from a purposefully half-correct, half-incorrect cultural theological perspective. Let me say that one more time just to make sure you heard it carefully. Here in the beginning of verse 15, Paul is making a correct biblical and historical distinction from a purposefully half-correct, half-incorrect cultural and theological perspective. First, you see Paul draw a correct biblical and historical distinction between all of humanity that presupposes a certain amount of understanding of the story of scripture. As we go back and we think through the story of the Old Testament, we see that the original situation between God and man was that God was in a right relationship with all humanity and that all humanity was his people. I'm referring, of course, to the Garden of Eden. As you think about the Garden of Eden, all humanity, right? Adam, Eve, all humanity is in a right relationship with God. And in the Garden of Eden, there is no distinction at this point between Jew and Gentile. It's not like Adam's a Jew and Eve's a Gentile and they don't eat together, right? I mean, it's all of humanity at this point with no distinctions whatsoever. And for that brief time, everything is well. But of course, that ends when Adam rebels against God's rule and reign and purposefully rejects him. And this rebellion introduces sin into the world. And with this sin comes the first punishment or judgment, I should say, of God against all mankind, and I'm referring to Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden. You need to understand that as the first worldwide act of judgment. <laughs> all humanity judged when they are kicked out of the garden. And yet, despite Adam's sin, did God turn his back on humanity? No, he doesn't turn his back on humanity. He shows great grace to Adam. And if I could put this in a theological perspective for just a moment, he continues to offer himself as God to both Adam and his descendants and to, to attempt to recreate a people for himself from this broken now humanity. Now you would think perhaps that after such a, a traumatic event as being kicked out of the garden, the judgment that, that extends to the whole world here, you would think that Adam and Eve would be very zealous to ensure that all of their descendants after them would know and live in a relationship with this one true God, that they would be very concerned that, that they would follow him and him alone. However, as we look at the story from Adam to Noah, we see that most, not all, but most of Adam's descendants do not do this. Most of Adam's descendants reject God. A couple of examples who don't reject him, if you're curious, Abel 
and Enoch. These would be two very good Old Testament examples of pre-Noahic humanity, knowing and living in a right relationship with the one true God. But by the time you get to Noah, what does God say about Noah? He is literally the last righteous man on earth, the only one. The earth is so full of wickedness by this point, so full of violence that God executes judgment on mankind a second time, destroying everyone this time, but Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives in a worldwide flood. And if I could again stop and put that in a theological perspective for you for just a moment, that means that in order to find salvation from the wrath of God, you have to, in faith, come to God through his man Noah. If you're going to find any salvation from the wrath to come, this is the way, because it's going to be through Noah now and his family that God is going to recreate a people for himself. That doesn't happen. And the flood occurs, and Noah and his family come off the ark. And you would expect then, would you not, that after the flood, that Noah and his family would be very concerned to make sure that all of their descendants know and live in a right relationship with this one true God. But of course, that doesn't happen. As you look from Noah to Abraham, you see that most of humanity, not all, but most of humanity rejects God again. If you're curious, a couple of examples that don't. Job, Melchizedek, these would be two good Old Testament examples of pre-Abrahamic humanity, knowing and living in relationship with the one true God, but the vast majority reject him. And by the time we get to Abraham, we see that humanity as a whole has rejected God Yet again, this is the Tower of Babel incident there in Genesis 11. Well, they want to build a tower and make a name for themselves and, and not separate and spread through the earth as God has commanded. They are going to be something for themselves. And so God rejects all of humanity. They don't want to be uh, follow the one true God. Okay. They don't want to be his people. Okay. So, so he executes, I'd say, judgment against them by rejecting all of them as a whole and singling out one man, Abraham, as, as, as in his family Israel, as being the one to whom and through whom he will reveal himself. If I could again put this in a theological perspective for us for a moment, again, in order now to find salvation, what do you have to do? Come in faith to God through his chosen man, his chosen people, Israel, through whom he's now going to re recreate a people for his own. Now, now, this is where we have to pause because this is the exact biblical and historical distinction that Paul is making between all of humanity here in verse 15 when he talks about these Jews and Gentiles. Because of my earlier explanation or your earlier knowledge, you already perhaps knew the distinction between a Jew and a Gentile biologically, but now you need to understand the difference between them theologically. And to help you understand the difference, let's use the Noah story as sort of a test case for us here, because I think we, we're probably more familiar with that story than a lot of other Old Testament biblical stories. So let's use that one just as a, a test case to help us think this through. To be a child of Noah was a great blessing, was it not? I mean, put yourself in that day. You're, if you're Shem, you're Ham, you're Japheth, just by sheer fact of your birth, you get a blessing, right? Okay, you're going to get on the ark, not because you're righteous, as we see as soon as they get off the ark, they are not. But just by sheer fact of birth, you, you're privileged. But for everyone else, all these other countless thousands or millions of people, perhaps, on the earth, by sheer fact of their birth, they don't have that same privilege. They are, by sheer fact of birth, disadvantaged. 
And so for them to be saved from, from the flood that's coming, my assumption is, is that, that for anyone outside of Noah's family, they would have to, in faith, come to God through his chosen man, Noah. And that if they had done that, if they had done that, they would have been saved from the flood. And you say, really? I've never thought about that. Well, it's conjecture, I grant, but I don't think it's unfounded conjecture. I mean, I'll give you three examples from the New Testament to think, to show why I think this is the case. In 1 Peter 3, Peter talks about God's patience waiting in the days of Noah. Well, waiting for what? Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, another one. Peter describes Noah in that case as a herald or a preacher of righteousness with the sense that he's like preaching and, and telling people, look, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> like, stop your wickedness, turn to God, that kind of idea. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the ark itself acted as a sign of coming condemnation to those who did not respond in faith. And so if I combine these ideas together, I th you know, the idea of Noah preaching as a herald of righteousness and the ark as a sign of coming judgment and the idea of God in patience waiting, I don't think my conjecture is unfounded that if, and it didn't happen, so this is kind of pointless in a sense, but if someone had in faith looked at the ark and heard Noah's message and said, man, I'm wicked, God's judgment is coming, I, 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 need, to, I need to repent, I need to get on that ark, I would assume they would have been saved, but of course no one did, and so they were all destroyed in God's judgment. So think of it like this. Their refusal to, in faith, come to God through his chosen man, Noah, was a de facto death sentence for all of them. A de facto death sentence. Okay, that's our test case. Now, let's come back to God's choosing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's choosing of Israel over all the rest of humanity, and think this through there. Would it not follow then, and could we not make a biblical case from the Old Testament, that Israel was privileged by birth, and that the Gentiles, the rest of the world, not born through that specific line, were in this sense disadvantaged by birth, and that for anyone outside of Israel who wanted to be saved, they would have to, in faith, come to God through his chosen man, his chosen people, Israel, and that if they did so, they would be saved? Yeah, that does follow. And yes, if we had time, I could show you from the Old Testament God's plan for the Gentiles. He expected and wanted Israel to be a light to the Gentile world. He wanted them to come to him and have a right relationship with him. And yet, as we look at the time between Abraham and Jesus, do we see... Lots and lots and lots of examples of Gentiles coming to faith in faith to God? No. There's a few. There's a few. But not many. Which means that everyone who didn't in faith come to God this way died in judgment. Their decision to refuse to come to God in faith through his chosen man Abraham, his chosen people Israel, was a de facto death sentence for them all. And at this point, you're probably sitting there going, okay, what's the point of all this, right? <laughs> like, why are you taking all this time to explain this idea? Well, the reason I'm spending so much time on this is because I need you to understand the very first building block of Paul's argument, his theological foundation, 
And that is the biblical and historical fact that the Jews were, by pure fact of birth, in a privileged position when it came to knowing the one true God. And that conversely then, Gentiles, which is pretty much all of us, I imagine. If you've got Jewish background in you, then maybe you're excluded, but I don't. My ancestors, my family line was disadvantaged by pure fact of birth from knowing and living in a relationship with the one true God. In other words, I want you to see that there really is such a thing as Jewish privilege. When you get that sense from the New Testament, it's real. The Jews were right to see themselves as special. God had chosen them above all the families of the earth to make his own. It was them that he had entered into covenant with. It was them that he had given his law, his word to. Uh, The God of the universe dwelt amongst them in the temple. He had promised to send them a Messiah, a Savior, who who would make them all in a right relationship with himself. To sum it up, the Jews had real hope of being in a right relationship with God. And the Gentile world, our ancestors, my forefathers, your forefathers, they didn't have this. They had rejected God way back at the Tower of Babel, and God had in turn rejected them. And so now listen to Paul's description of the Gentile condition in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God in this world. And I want you to really focus in on that last part because that's what you really need to understand today. If you are in this room and you are from a Gentile background, which is probably most of us, then we need to understand just how disadvantaged we were Paul, under inspiration of the Spirit, says that we were, by pure fact of birth, hopeless in this world, totally without God. And so as we come back now to verse 15, if Paul comes across here as sounding like Jews are privileged and Gentiles are not, I need you to understand this morning that that is, in a sense, absolutely correct. It is absolutely correct to think that way. As I said when we started all of this, Paul begins explaining his confrontation with Peter by making a correct biblical and historical distinction from a purposefully half-correct, half-incorrect cultural and theological perspective. What I've done today is I've shown you the correct biblical and historical distinction, and I've shown you the purposely half-correct cultural and theological perspective You'll have to wait until next week to see the purposely incorrect half because that's a foundation stone in and of itself. Now, how do we land this plane today? Well, I'm going to try to do it very simply by taking us back here to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, and asking you to think very deeply about what Paul is saying here. He is trying to help us understand who we were. No, let's say that stronger. He is trying to help us understand who we deserved to be. We had no hope. And as Gentiles, we didn't deserve any. We were without God in this world, he says. And as Gentiles, we deserve to be without him. Now, this rubs against us because 
No one wants to think that they don't deserve hope or they don't deserve God in this world, especially considering that the people who were rejected are the people who lived thousands of years ago when God rejected all of humanity and turned to one man. Our forefathers, though, people, and sometimes this happens in life where one person's choices have ramifications for years to come. Think of Adam. This is one example from the scriptures. But our forefathers chose to reject God, and in judgment, God rejected them. And he was right to do so. And he would have been right to leave us like that, but he didn't. Because verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you, you, and you remember, he's specifically talking to Gentiles here. It's not just to you as a person, it's to you as a people. You Gentiles as a people, you now who once were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And this is obviously a, a, a multifaceted idea. It's a, it's a diamond with a thousand facets. And what I have done this morning, and it's unusual for us to some extent, is I have zoomed in on just one very specific facet. But in the spirit of thanksgiving, I would like for us to recognize and give thanks and praise to God this morning for this facet that he in great grace and in great love, did not leave us Gentiles where he could have rightly left us. He didn't leave us hopeless, and he didn't leave us without God in this world. That he in patience waited for us, that he sent heralds of righteousness to us, so that in the Messiah promised to his chosen people, Israel, we too could experience what it means to be the people of God. That we too could be in covenant with him, that we too could have his word, that we too could know what it means to have God dwell in and among us, and that we too could have a real eternal hope in and through the blood of his son, Jesus. And so until next week, until the next stone, will you bow your heads and thank God with me. Father, we, we come and we just say thank you because we recognize that we as a people as Gentiles, we had rejected you. And you had every right to reject us in turn. You could have left us hopeless. You could have left us without yourself. And we would have deserved that. But in your great grace and love, you chose in your eternal plan to not leave us like that, but to send your son to die not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. So all those walls of separation that had been built could be destroyed and we could now become one in Christ. And so help us to appreciate this, to know that not only were we undeserving individually because of our sin, but we are undeserving as a people. We, we are undeserving in every way we look at this thing. And yet we are accepted now as sons in and through Jesus Christ. And so we thank you this morning and we praise you for your great grace that we have in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.